Well, I am excited to say that we have a uh, new elder affirmed in our ministry. So it, the count has been given, and so we want to just congratulate Josh. Thank you. Thanks for being a part of our leadership team, and uh, he's already been an unbelievable uh, asset to the ministry his whole family has. So um, I, don't, I don't know if you've noticed it lately, but people are like crazy. Um, I don't know if you've noticed it. Uh, uh, they have these little thing called Fitbits on, or they have the new Apple Watch, okay? They're above the Fitbit because it's Apple. Um, of course, it's always above everything else. But people are just doing weird things. Watch this and tell me if you don't come to the same conclusion. Should I charge my phone or my Fitbit? Hey, how many steps you got? We lost our car at Disneyland today, and I got an extra 3,000 steps. Can you swim in the Fitbit? Stepping in place counts, too. How many steps you got? How does it know I'm moving? Hey, hey, oh, put this in your pocket. What? Run, run, put it in your pocket. What, my feet are killing me. How many steps you got? Why do we have to keep walking? My feet hurt, but I refuse to lose. Did you shower in your Fitbit? Sink. How many steps you got? If I put my Fitbit on my ankle, will that give me points for riding my bike? How many steps you got? What? You stole my bike. Guess I'm gonna get some more steps in now. Do I charge my phone or my Fitbit? How many steps you got? How many steps do you have? I hate that I'm stuck in traffic. I'm losing steps right now. How many steps do you have? Do you keep track of your sleep patterns? How many times did you wake up last night? I woke up 34 times. 34! For real? Take a bath in your Fitbit. Yeah, you know, I don't even track my sleep anymore. I'm really consistent. We got three minutes left. It's 11.57. Come on, man. How many steps you got? Sink your Fitbit to your phone. Now what's crazy is that you got a bunch of OCD people out there that are trying to get a number of steps in before, you know, the day's over. And they're kind of walking in circles or walking without purpose. It's not even necessarily for exercise anymore. It's just because they want to get all their steps in for the day. They're walking without purpose. Now, I think in a way that this is kind of a depiction of life, because I think that there's a lot of people that are just walking in life without a whole lot of purpose. It's kind of like the dog that perpetually chases its tail, and you're like, that dog is crazy. Why is he doing that? He just does it because he's a dog. But there's no real purpose in it. And I think that there are people in society, and some of us could be in that classification, where we're walking aimlessly. It's like, I feel like in life, I don't know where I'm going. I don't know what my purpose is. I don't know what God wants even of my life. And we're just kind of chasing things. I think that there are times that we chase things in just life. We chase the ideal job and we finally get what we think is the ideal job, the dreamy company, and then we realize it's not as dreamy as I thought. The co-workers that were supposed to be incredible team members aren't really what I thought. The job isn't what it was cut out to be or said to be and the pay, well, it's not measuring up either. 
Some of us have chased after relationships or in a marriage. We think this is going to be an awesome marriage. This is, I'm chasing something and I think it's going to be found in marriage. And then we get married to the guy, the, you get married to the guy and you realize uh, he passes gas. I mean, this guy isn't as much of a team player as I thought he would be. I had this, this, this leader all thought up in my mind, and he's not fitting the image of what I wanted. Some of us are like that in church. Some of us have looked for and chased after the, in a sense, the perfect religion. And so what we've done is we've just taken a look and, and just gone to church and gone through the motions and we are just chasing things. Now, I did this early in life. I thought maybe religion would do, do something for me. And then I came to realize that the doctrine that my church held to was like watered-down pudding, and there was just like no substance to it at all, that they didn't believe in the inerrancy of the Word of God. Now, I don't mind putting this on the screen. This week, this was from my denomination, uh, my denomination put this out on the Facebook post. Bibles like GPS, a brilliant guide, all-knowing, occasionally wrong. So that's my church that I grew up in. That's actually Randy and Todd's church too. I mean, we grew up in that environment. And there was this kind of universal belief in salvation. You're like, this doesn't fit. When I read my Bible, it just doesn't seem right. And it's like we go around and around on this merry-go-round trying to find some kind of purpose in what it's all about, and we're not finding it in the things that we're pursuing. Here's what I know. Without the proper destination plugged into your life GPS, then you're going to go the wrong way. You're going to go the wrong way. I can remember a couple of years ago, I was going to Beulah Beach for a Remember New board meeting. And I was going there, and what you need to know is Beulah Beach is in Vermilion, Ohio. But for some reason, I had Astabula in my mind. Now, maybe Beulah and Astabula, you can understand why I got them all mixed up. But needless to say, I pursued and I went to Astabula, and I had the wrong coordinates plugged in and as a result I drove around for hours in the wrong direction. Here's what I learned from that experience. If you want to drive with purpose and intention then make sure you have the right coordinates in your GPS of life. This is what I've learned about life. What kind of direction do I have? And that's a question I want us to ask this morning. What kind of direction do you know where you're going, really? Do you know the direction of your life? Is it secured in your mind as to what this is all about? We only have so many years to live in this life. How is it that we're living this life? Are we living it with purpose? Are we living it with value? But here's the cool thing. You've come to the right place because whenever we open God's Word, what God's Word is always going to do is always going to give us value, it's always going to give us purpose, and it's always going to give us hope. God doesn't leave things ambiguous as I grew up believing in church. But what we realize is that God has a destination for us to go on. And we're learning about how we travel this journey of faith 
in this life. Today we're going to be looking at our fourth unlikely hero, Abraham, and we're going to be looking at the journey of faith in his life in three verses in Hebrews chapter 11. So Hebrews chapter 11, turn there. We'll take a look at three verses, but let's ask the Lord to open our eyes this morning. Lord, I pray that you would help us today to hear from you. I pray, Father, that as we look at your word, that you would remove any scales from our eyes, that you would help us to see what our journey should be about in this life. I pray, Father, that you would help us to be your ambassadors, to be your servants, and to be people that have great direction in life because we know who we are living for. And I pray, Father, that you would use your word to help, help us to see the things that we should be encouraged in, help us to see the things that need to be corrected in our life, and help us to be a people of faith. Because, Lord, we know that without faith it is impossible to please you. And so, Lord, that's our desire, is to please you in everything. In Christ's name, amen. Turn in your Bibles, Hebrews 11. We start off, there's four stages of the journey that we're going to look at this morning. The first stage is the call of God in Abraham's life. The call of God in Abraham's life. And we look at verse 8, it says this, By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. By faith, Abraham obeyed. Now, we need to parallel this with some of the Old Testament passages. And in Genesis chapter 12, we start seeing, we see the introduction of Abraham in the passage. And so what we learn here is that there was a call of God. And this is what it says in, in Genesis 12, 1. It says, uh, God said to Abraham, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you. Now, if you study just a few verses before that, at the very end of chapter 11 of Genesis, you will learn that Abraham's family was in a place called Ur, Ur of the Chaldeans, which was in a land called Mesopotamia. Now, you heard of Mesopotamia last week, if you were in the service, because Noah lived in Mesopotamia. It was a desert region. He was building a barge in the middle of a desert. Well, this is where Abraham is from, and it is modern-day Iraq. Now, if you take a look at the map on the screen, this will get you oriented right over where it says summer. Right under there is Ur. This is where the journey began. It was over in modern-day Iraq. Now here's what we know about Abraham. We know according to Joshua 24 verse 2, it says that Abraham's family engaged in pagan worship, which was common in the land that he lived in, in the land of Mesopotamia. So it's, it's reasonable for us to ask the question, why Abraham? Why did God all of a sudden pick this pagan worshiper who lived in this desert land filled with pagan worship? Why Abraham? Why did he call him to move from one place to a place that would be his inheritance? Why in the world did God pick him? I think it's reasonable for us to ask that. Did God see something special in Abraham? Did he really look at his heart and say, man, there is something special about this guy? Uh, did deep down, did he not really believe all the pagan worship stuff? 
Well, from the scriptures, the answer would be no and no. No, he, uh, there doesn't seem to appear to be anything special about Abraham that God would pick him. And it doesn't seem, I mean, it does seem that he worshiped false gods. And so that's evident in his life as well. So why would God do this? See, I think what God is doing here is he's showing what he does for each and of, each and of uh, uh, us in life. We were undeserving. There was nothing special about us that God would say, I love this person, I want to show them my grace, and that's all that Abraham is, is a picture of grace of God extending to somebody that was completely undeserving. Anybody undeserving of the grace of God? Everybody here. Everybody here. Now, outside of this, we don't know anything about Abraham. We don't know his occupation. We don't know his status in life. We don't know how popular he was. We don't know how he and Sarah met. But what we do know is that God called him. God called him, and Abraham knew explicitly that God was speaking to his heart. Now, did he come in a burning bush? Did he come in a cloud? Did he come in just a voice out of nowhere? We're not told that information, but what we do know is that Abraham heard the voice of God. He was convinced it was God, and he was going to obey that voice, and he was going to move as God told him to move. Now, in order for us to really understand what a dramatic thing and what a dramatic thing it was for him to be able to listen to the voice of God, we need to understand his worldview. There was an old worldview that Abraham was a part of, and there was a new uh, worldview that God was moving him to. The old worldview had everything to do with the pagan worship and the culture that they lived in. The city of Ur was known to be a place where they worshipped the moon goddess, who was also known as a fertility goddess. In this belief system, people were responsible to appease the moon goddess and in order for that moon goddess to bless their crops and to bless their womb in order for them to have children. In an attempt to appease the goddess, the people did all kinds of superstitious things to influence what they called the divine life cycle. They believed that there was this divine life cycle, that there was this fall and winter, and there was the dead and barrenness of life, and that if they did so many things, then the goddess would be pleased and would bless their crops in the spring and the fall. And it was circular in nature. They were constantly trying to please this goddess, and as a result, they did all kinds of works. Now, what were some of their works? Some of their works were getting into highly emotional, highly uh, uh, involved type of worship services where they would try to do all kinds of things, get on their hands and knees. They would do all kinds of prostrating before the, the goddess. They would also involve themselves in temple prostitution. It was a very, very sexually oriented type of belief system that they had to participate in. This cycle went around and around and around. Now, if you don't un understand anything about this worldview, understand this. Their worship was a perpetual cycle of works that could, they, they could only hope would have a positive outcome in their life without any certainty. Think about that. 
Their worship was a perpetual cycle of works that they could only hope that there was a positive outcome of certainty. My friends, I've just described religion. That is what religion is. That's the religion I grew up in. It was just a perpetual cycle of works. If I just go to prayer, if I just go to church, if I just sing the songs, if I just pray my prayers, then maybe, just maybe, I might go to heaven. I increase my chances to go to heaven. It was just this perpetual cycle. And some of you understand exactly what that is all about. Now, the new worldview that God was calling uh, Abraham to was a calling of a linear journey. It was to get off the merry-go-round and follow a linear journey where he would actually work or walk by faith. This wasn't a journey of works. It was a journey of faith, a faith in the certainty of an outcome that God, the one true God, would work in his life. See, Abraham knew for certain. It wasn't a guess. It wasn't a gamble. It wasn't anything like that. He knew with 100% certainty that God was speaking, that God would take him on this journey, and that God would guide him. Do you have that kind of certainty in your life? That's the faith journey that God wants every one of us on. It's interesting that Abraham is the most quoted individual in the New Testament. And it is stated of him that it was credited to him as righteousness because he what? He believed God. Do you remember what our definition of faith is? Faith is when God speaks, we listen. And we believe that whatever he says, he's going to do. Now, if you put yourself in the context of Abraham, they didn't have the Bible in written form. They didn't have the Torah. They didn't have anything. But what they did have is the voice of God. And at that time, that's the revelation that God had given Abraham was his voice. Graciously, God has given us this in written form. He has given us the voice of God in printed form. And so Abraham had to believe what he was given. And so we have to believe what has been given to us. And to much who, that's been given, much is required. Friends, we have been given the voice of God right here in written form. For many of us, we know exactly what Abraham went through because it's happened to us. Our previous worldview was just like his. It was cyclical. We were just going through the motions. We were going to church maybe. We were praying prayers. We were doing those things. Then all of a sudden, we met Christ. We heard his voice. Maybe he was introduced to us by a friend. We saw it in somebody's life. And all of a sudden, we realized that we needed to repent of our sins and to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And then when that happened, we no longer were just trying to appease God. We realized that we were living for God and that there was a relationship and that I could start reading God's word and start walking step by step, day by day, walking with God. And this is what the journey of faith, this is how the journey of faith began for most people in this room. If it hasn't begun for you, please realize he wants it to begin. It just starts by us coming to the place of repenting and believing. But this takes us to our first faith principle. I'm going to give you five faith principles today. Here's the first. The first is this. Faith begins by listening to the word of God. Are you listening? 
Faith begins by listening to the word of God. Step out. Step out in faith by listening to the word of God. Let's see the next step in, in Abraham's journey. We look at the progressive obedience that Abraham has. Look at verse 8, the next phrase. It says, and he went out not knowing where he was going. Now, if I told you, hey, I want you to follow, I want you to do this, I want you to go out in faith, but I'm not going to tell you where you're going to go, you and I would be logically saying, well, God, a little bit more information here would be really, really nice. But Abraham actually took a step of faith without even knowing the direction that he was supposed to go. Now, if you take a look at this map, you will see the, the upside-down V journey that Abraham actually took. Now, you see he starts off in Ur, and he's going to go up to Haran, and then he's going to eventually head down to where Israel is today. Now, what we see here is that God gave Abraham his first message in Ur. Now, we're told that in Acts chapter 7, if you want to read a parallel passage, Acts 7, 2 through 6, will give you a parallel passage. You can write it down and read it later. But what God does is he gives them the first bit of information there, and he says, Abraham, I want you to leave. Now, he doesn't tell them where to go, but he says, I want you to leave. Now, what we do know is that there was a fertile crest highway that many people traveled during that day. And in order to get in and out of Ur, you could only go along the Tigris and Euphrates River. And so what they did is they started traveling around, along that river because that was the highway. And they were trusting that God would tell them when to stop. Well, they stop in Haran for actually Abraham's father would eventually pass away there. And maybe that's why they paused there for a moment. But it's interesting, in Haran, God gave him another message. He gave him Genesis chapter 12, verses 2 and 3. This is what God said to Abraham in Haran. He says, I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and you and all the families of the earth shall be blessed. You know what's interesting here? Is I wonder if Abraham wouldn't have taken that first step of faith, would God have given him more information? I wonder if some of us are waiting for information from God, and we're just sitting and God's saying, you take a step of faith, because without faith, it's impossible to please me. Abraham took the step of faith, and he said, okay, I'm going to believe you. And then God spoke. And not only did he speak, he had an unbelievable message. Think about this. He says, I am going to make you a great nation. I am going to make your name great and every family, every ethos of the world, every nation, nationality, the peoples of the earth are going to be blessed through you. Now, I don't think Abraham understood it, but this was a prophecy about the Messiah, that the Messiah would come through the line of Abraham. All the nations of the earth would be blessed. Now, after God spoke this, Acts 7 says that God then told him, go to the promised land. I want you to go from Haran down to the promised land of Canaan. And now we'll talk about that in a minute, but let me give you the second faith principle. The second faith principle is that faith is progressive in nature. So be patient. Faith is progressive 
in nature, so be patient. I say patient because we often want God to speak to my issue right now, when I want it, how I want it. Remember, Abraham, he wasn't following his own dreams. He wasn't following his own plan. He was following God's plan. And so God was the one who needed to speak. And sometimes we need to just be patient and wait for God. We often think that this life is about our plans, that this life is about our wishes. But remember, when you came to faith in Christ, you and I came to faith in Christ, Galatians 2.20 says that our plans were crucified with Christ. And it's no longer our plans that live. It's no longer I who lives. But it's Christ's plan that lives within me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith. Because faith is what pleases God. For, uh, in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. In his book, Daniel Lockwood uh, writes uh, something about patience. Now, Daniel Lockwood wrote the book, Unlikely Heroes, Ordinary People with Extraordinary Faith. And yes, this is a resource that this series is based on. It's a good commentary of Hebrews 11. And so we are using that. I encourage you to buy it, to be a part of your library. I think it would be an excellent, uh, an excellent book for you to have. This is what he says about patience in the journey. He says, the Bible is less a list of map quest directions and more of a hiking guide and compass. It provides moral principles for the journey and marks the dangers of the road while showing us the purpose and the ultimate destiny of our spiritual journey the Bible is far more interested interested in revealing the character of God who has called us to the journey and the Savior who has provided the grace to endure it while reassuring us of our destiny it exhorts us to patience and endurance however the path may twist and turn have you seen twists and turns in your path in your life absolutely and what god says i want you to have it's progressive it's patience i want you to trust me now we see the third aspect of abraham's journey in verse 9 it says this by faith he went to live in the land of promise, we're talking about Canaan, as in a foreign land. Now to understand the next phase of Abraham's journey of faith, it would be really good if you were able to take time to read Genesis 12 through Genesis 25. God dedicates 14 chapters to talk about the journey of Abraham. That would be a good devotional thing to do this week if you would like to get into the Word and study it further. But if you were to do that, you would realize that there are some high points and there are some low points in Abraham's journey as he moves in to the land of modern-day Israel. There are several lessons. Let me give you the high points first. The high points will be found in Genesis 12, in Genesis 15, and in Genesis 18. Now, the first high point we've already referenced, it's actually what happened in Haran, where God spoke to him the Old Testament Great Commission. Remember, I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to name you, make your name great, and all the peoples of the earth will be blessed. Now, in theology, that's called the Abrahamic Covenant. 
God made a covenant with Abraham and said, this is what I'm going to do. Now, anytime that God would verbally speak to Moses or to Abraham, it had to be impactful. It would be impactful for us. He lived 175 years and not every single day did God verbally speak to him. So on the days that he would verbally speak to you, I'm going to mark it down as a very big high point in his life. I think that that was the case for Abraham. Now, please know that God, this was so important to God that he repeats it over and over again to Abraham during his life. Maybe Abraham was like me as a guy. I need to hear things repeatedly in order for it to sink in. So that was the first high point. The second high point was in Genesis 15 when God says, I'm going to make an unconditional promise in order to make your nation great. You're going to have to have a nation. You're going to have to have an actual land that is all your own that by which I will call you into that land. And then he tells Abraham, this is going to be the history of your family. Your family is going to get big. And your family is eventually going to go into 400 years of slavery. But I want you to know my promise, my vow to you is that I am going to guide your family into the promised land that I am promising you right now, Abraham. That's my vow. Now, normally in that day, when someone was making a vow to ratify that vow, they would take an animal sacrifice, cut that animal in half, put it off to two sides. Sounds gruesome. You're like, we don't do that today. But this is how they ratified it then. And two people would walk between the two halves, knowing that it was sealed by blood of an animal. Now, in this particular case, God has Abraham sit this one out. Abraham, you're sitting this one out because this is my unconditional promise. I will do this without the help of any individual. I, my name is at stake here. I will walk through. And through the image of a, a floating uh, fiery pot, he walks through the two halves. God does. And it is a picture for Abraham of what God was promising. Talk about a high point. I would remember that one. The third high point is this. The third high point is in Genesis chapter 18. It's when Abraham was, 89, or was 99 and Sarah was 89. And God, through a theophany, an appearance, I believe, of Christ in the Old Testament, says, hey, by the way, this time next year, your wife's going to be having a child. Now, this would have been maybe about the time that they would have been thinking about retiring at the villages, um, about going down there and cruising through the rest of their life. But God says, no, you're actually going to start your family at this point. Even though Sarah laughs, this would have been a high point in terms of what God was doing with Abraham. Here's the faith principle, the third faith principle I want you to get here. The third faith principle is this. Faith involves success. Aren't you glad? Aren't you glad that there are successes that God wants to do and it'll happen because he's speaking to us. He is speaking to us. Church, there will be times that it seems as if God is speaking directly to you. 
Now, it's not every single day. There's days that I really get a lot from God's word, and sometimes it's just like the meal of the day. But there are times where it's like the voice of God is saying, Steve, this is what I want in your life. And sometimes God uses individuals in my life. He uses a repeated theme, people, leaders that will speak to me. It's something I hear on the radio. It's something I'm listening to a podcast or I'm studying in preparation for a message. And it's like repeated messages. And God, you finally is like, yeah. I think you want this, God. I think you are directing me in this way. There are times that God will do that. I remember back in uh, 1999, I felt that God began to speak to me about something he wanted me to do. I had been a youth pastor for 14 years, and by any stretch of the imagination, that's a long time for a youth pastor. And I felt like God was speaking to my heart that he wanted me to become an outreach pastor and possibly a church planter. I wasn't certain what that looked like, but this is how I knew God was speaking. We had been doing many mission projects down in Tampico, Mexico, and we had developed some incredible partners. By the way, my partners in ministry down in Tampico that I've known for 20 years are with us today. Please say hello to them in the comments. And it's just been incredible working with them. But when we began working with their little Bible study that became a church that eventually started uh, thinking about planting other churches, we were doing outreaches in their community. We were talking about church planting. And then they would say to me, Steve, how's it going back at Maranatha? How is it going in terms of your outreaches in the community and your planting of churches in back home? And I had to say... It wasn't happening. And God started burdening my heart for our church. I thought we were missing the, the, missing the way in, that God wanted. We were only five years old at that time. So I came back with this burden. I shared it with the elders. And in 2000, the elders decided to commission me to be an outreach pastor, that I would transition out of the youth ministry. And they wanted me to help navigate the church through getting out into the community and loving people in the community and getting people all this core stuff that we talk about. It started way back then. Our circle of responsibility. And so this is what we, I began praying about. And as we started walking through this process, my last six months, I said, okay, God, they, uh, they made a decision for me to be an outreach pastor. What now? I have no idea what in the world I'm going to do. I have no idea what it is. So God, it'd be really, really cool if you could really lay on my heart the things that you want me to do right now. That's what I got. Nothing. Six months of nothing. I was it, was, it was the very week that I gave over the youth ministry and I'm starting my job. I'm like, okay, God. I was taking a run that day and I said, it'd be really nice. It'd be really nice if you really help me see what you want. Now I had been reading books. I had been studying other churches, but I just didn't feel like there was a comprehensive plan that God wanted for me. And in the middle of the run, all of a sudden, there's like the floodgates open, my mind and heart opened, and all of a sudden there was just this flood of things that God put on my heart. I ran home so fast because I needed to start putting everything down on paper. Here's the point. The point is, this was a success in my life. 
because I sensed that God was speaking. It's not every day that God does that in our lives, but there will be times where God will intentionally show you the steps that he wants you to take. Rejoice in those successes. They will be there if we're stepping out in faith. But there were failures in Abraham's life as well. And what's interesting, every chapter that there was a success, there was a failure that was on the heels of that success. Remember Genesis 12, the great commission of the Old Testament? Well, that was the first failure of Abraham. There was a famine in the land of Canaan. And instead of Abraham saying, okay, God, you brought me here. I'm going to trust that you are going to give my family all the provisions that they need. And so we're going to trust you. But instead, he took matters into his own hands and he went down to Egypt where there was plenty of food. And while he was in Egypt, there was a king there that was starting to eye his wife. And he said, oh, this is my sister. He lies. And so as a result, the king takes Sarah as his own wife and God starts cursing his land and cursing his, his people. And he says, you lied to me. This must be your wife because God, your God, is cursing me. And of course, he wants to get rid of this hex that's upon him. At least that's in his thinking. He gives back his wife. He gives them gifts. He boots them out the door and he says, and he gives them servants. And he says, God be with you. And God restored that king. So that was a low point in Abraham's life. He lied right after God had shown him great success. The second failure was this. In Genesis 16, God had already promised Abraham, I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to bless you with an incredible family. And nothing was happening. We're in our 70s now. We're, he's 80, she's 70-something, and, and we have no children. We're, we're not getting any younger. And so what do they do is they take matters into their own hands. See, the, you're seeing a theme here. We mess it up when we take matters into our own hands. And so they take matters into their own hands, and Sarah says to Abraham, she says, I want you to sleep with my Egyptian servant Hagar. The sins of Egypt are still having their ongoing effects. This sin causes much of a long family division, disdain, jealousy, and it violates monogamy. This was one hot mess. Now the third failure of Abraham was this. The third failure was in Genesis chapter 20. Genesis chapter 20, it says that Abraham lied to another king about Sarah being his wife and said that she's my sister. Now, technically, she was a half-sister. It was a half-truth, but God isn't honored with half-truths, and so he brings a curse there as well. Now, here's, a, here's what we learned from this, another faith principle from these failures. Number four is that faith involves failures. So repent. Faith involves failures so repent yes temptation comes on the heels of successes yes we tend to take matters into our own hands don't we yes when we do take matters into our own hands we mess things up and we violate trust and there are people that just are not going to trust you because you broke their your your credibility with them what God wants us to do is to confess our sins. 
Do you realize it takes faith to believe that God will forgive me? I quote 1 John 1, 9 to people all the time. If you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And usually when I'm counseling that, many times I've heard, well, yeah, but. Yeah, but Steve, you don't really understand all the ways that I've messed up. Yeah, but there's no way that God could over, uh, forgive all the, I can't even forgive myself for these things. Yeah, but. Please remember when you say, yeah, but you're not believing in faith what God wants to do. See, we got to believe in faith that God will forgive us. And when we believe that he can forgive us, then we got to also believe that we can now forgive other people of what they've done against us. And there, this is where I hear another, yeah, but. Yeah, but Steve, you don't understand how I have been violated. You don't understand how my, I have been betrayed by an individual, so the abuse I've been through, sexual, emotional. You don't understand how I've been taken advantage of. You don't understand that. No, I don't. But God does. He knows exactly, exactly what you've been through. And here's why I know. The one who has forgiven your sins will give you the ability to forgive others. The one who has forgiven your sins will give you the ability to forgive others. Let's move quickly to the last principle, the anticipation. We see in verse 9 and 10 this. Living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. Now what's interesting in the scriptures is that God makes a promise to Abraham's future family that Abraham himself would not completely realize. He would not have a foot of ground, according to Acts 7, to own for himself. Yes, he had a place to bury his wife, but he didn't have a place for his wife when she was living to, to be able to develop roots, for her to be able to nest, for them to establish a foundation. No, Abraham was a sojourner. He lived in a tent. If you read those 12, 14 chapters, you would say he went from this place to 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 this place. That's what he did. He lived in tents. And you say, well, why didn't he establish somewhere? There's nowhere that I see that God says, Abraham, you can't develop roots anywhere. Uh, in fact, the only thing we're told is that Abraham was supposed to explore the land that God was giving him. Here's why I think he wasn't, he didn't develop roots. I think Hebrews 11 gives us indication. Abraham was looking forward to the city that has foundations, who designer and builder is God. This, my, my, my friends, reflects the heart of a worshiper. This reflects the heart of a man who wanted more than anything to be with God in all eternity. And that was his focal point. See, that brings up some questions for me. Is it possible for some of us to be so fixed on the etern their internal home that they forego the luxuries of this life? Is it possible? Is it possible that this perspective is actually the secret to success and fulfillment and purpose on this earth? Is it possible that I can actually even have a home here, but treat it as merely a tent until I get to my eternal dwelling. 
Friends, when our hearts are consumed with giving worth to God in this life, then the answer is yes, yes, and yes. When we understand that our citizenship is in heaven, all of a sudden we have our GPS coordinates in life. We have our GPS coordinates in life and we know what we are living for. And it affects the way that we think. It affects the way that we act. It affects the way that we love people to Jesus. One of our missionaries, Carl Ralston, was a very wealthy insurance agent for many years. He was in his mid-40s when he was on a mission trip to Thailand and he heard for the very first time a story of a young girl named Nu. Uh, that new had been sold by a family member in, uh, for a weekend, and possibly she was in the sex trade at that time. In the midst, of, this just absolutely devastated Carl. And in the midst of this broken moment, he got off by himself, and he, it had been like a desert experience with God for so long, and all of a sudden, God broke through with two words. Remember new. Remember new. Those two words would affect the, the career path or the journey, so to speak, that Carl was on. Here's the last 10 years of Carl's life as a snapshot. Number one, he finished his master's with an emphasis on key partnerships that would abolish the sex trade industry from alone. Number two, he started a nonprofit ministry called Remember New. Number three, after six trips to Cambodia, he finally found new. It was like finding a needle in the haystack of a mi millions of people. Next, he started his first home in Cambodia. Then one home led to another home. He eventually hired new as the first spokesperson for the ministry. She was a very first employee, and he and Lori adopted her in their hearts as their own daughter. Next, he sold his business. He sold his business and lived off the proceeds uh, for, the, to, for the development of this ministry. He eventually sold his home, and he moved to Thailand for several years, and now he lives in Portland and continues to oversee this ministry that has one goal, goal in mind, to end the exploitation of children in the sex trade. At this point, after 10 years of ministry... There are 50 homes. There are, they are in 10 different countries. And there are 1,100 children that have been spared from being ravished and raped by evil people. Friends, Carl never imagined that his life would go this direction. Never in a million years did he think that. But my friends, when we take steps of faith, in this journey, and we listen to God, who knows what God will do? He took 12 ordinary disciples who had no education, and he turned the world upside down. What could he do with a congregation like this? Dear Heavenly Father, as we think about this for our own life, as we think about this application for us, help us to think about our destination. Lord, I hope that our heart will be set on heaven, 
and that you would help us to have your mindset. I pray, Father, that as we even sing about heaven now, that you would help us to think about our own journey, that we would listen to you. Lord, help us to put one foot in front of the other as we listen to your voice. Help us to rejoice in our victories. Help us to repent when we fail. And Lord, help us to believe that we can forgive others as well. Lord, help us to strive with the purpose of heaven before us. And may you do some amazing things through our ministry as we submit ourselves humbly to you. In Christ's name, amen.